So through disinformation campaign, we can still promote our values, even if we're spreading less than true reality. Digital authoritarianism represents a challenge to us as liberal democratic states. Personally, I don't think it's smart uh, for the United States to wait for big tech to solve our disinformation problems. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within the Army Futures Command, and I'm joined by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be continuing our discussion with research fellows from the College of William and Mary's Project on International Peace and Security, or PIPS. PIPS is one of the premier undergraduate think tanks in the country, designed to bridge the gap between the academic and foreign policy communities in the area of undergraduate education. PIPS research fellows identify emerging international security issues and develop original policy recommendations to address those challenges. This is the concluding episode in our two-part series with the PIPS. And finally, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Okay, we're here with Lincoln Zaleski now. Um, hey, Lincoln, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Lincoln Zaleski. I'm a senior uh, here at the college. I study international relations and Arabic. Um, right now I'm working on, uh, on a research project to try and understand a strategic concept for uh, modern disinformation campaigns. Very relevant uh, to what we've been talking about on the podcast so far already and, uh, and what we write about all the time. So how is the rise of technology and information warfare affecting vulnerabilities in liberal democracies like the U.S.? Vulnerabilities within liberal democracies obviously very much exist um, and are exploited to to a huge extent. Um, and there are all kinds of different kinds of vulnerabilities that we have. So some of them are institutional. Um, we have a difficulty responding to uh, certain kinds of disinformation warfare because as a liberal democracy, we're not going to, to censor the internet and turn off uh, the kind of media sources that we have. Um, and then we have more tactical vulnerabilities. So we're a very large country and we allow a lot more power to, uh, to our states. And so because of those geographic vulnerabilities, we're going to have a less centralized government that has less control over the people um, and the way that they interact with disinformation and the way that it's shared online. Um, and then we have more targeting vulnerabilities and less responding vulnerabilities. Uh, so we have economic vulnerabilities. A lot of our economy is based on uh, information and the way that uh, information travels through our systems. Um, in many parts of the country, we have a transitioning economy. You think about the coal belt, uh, places like Kentucky. They're going to be much more, more vulnerable to these kinds of attacks because they're starting to feel more marginalized. And so with nationalist campaigns and nationalist ideas um, that are promoted through these disinformation networks, uh, you're going to have the kind of vulnerabilities that pop up um, in, in those kinds of regions. And finally, we have obvious societal vulnerabilities. Uh, we've seen a rise in, in xenophobic attacks and xenophobic comments, and part of that is driven by disinformation. And they're going to go after naturally marginalized, naturally disenfranchised groups. 
on a bunch of different scales. So whether that's socioeconomic, whether it's racial, whether it's religious, whatever those barriers and biases tend to be, that's what they're going to go after. And so those kinds of disinformation campaigns are enabled by emerging technologies in ways that past disinformation campaigns weren't. So with the rise of technology, we're going to be able to see more precise targeting. Let's say a Russian sitting in his home in Moscow is going to be able to figure out, hey, Black Lives Matter or a white nationalist group or whatever identity group there is, is going to be more ripe for targeting because they have pre-existing biases or they have pre-existing ways of thinking. And so because of that, you're going to see those vulnerabilities really come through in liberal democracies. And what, what are the technologies you think are featured the most uh, in that sense? Um, it's really anything that alters reality. Uh, so we hear a lot of talk now about post-truth society and what modern truth is, what modern reality is. So artificial intelligence is obviously going to help with that to some extent. Uh, you have bots spamming the same kind of repeated information at people um, through that same type of learning software, learning algorithms. You're going to have stuff like augmented reality and virtual reality uh, that in many ways can change the way that we think about things. Later on in this podcast, you're going to hear about deepfakes, which are absolutely part of just modern disinformation. And those are just some of the examples. Uh, there are more historical ones, clandestine radio stations, newspapers that post stuff that isn't true, and that's existed for a long time. But in terms of modern technology, those are the examples that come to mind. We talked, you know, just a minute ago about, you know, what are the vulnerabilities? Do you think, conversely, are there any strengths within liberal democracy that kind of, you know, counters this trend? I think to an extent, some people see this as a weakness, I actually see it as a strength, is we don't have a government-controlled media. So in, in many ways, uh, the, the free flow of thought and the independence of our media outlets allow for fact-finding and people to identify what fake news is. And that allowance of, of allowance for corporations to really fit into our detection capabilities is actually expanding uh, our detection further than it would, I believe, if it was a if we were just a public centralized government. What can we do on a more personal level uh, to counter these disinformation campaigns? Uh, you know, something less broad, uh, something that every day you know we can do on our own. Firstly, I think one of the things that's lacking, and the reason why I've tackled this project, is. The United States does not have a good understanding of how the strategy behind disinformation campaigns work. And so when I say I'm proposing a strategic concept, it's a lot of large-scale, thousand-foot view uh, mapping of the way that Russians and Chinese and Iranians and different authoritarian campaigns think about disinformation. And so I think understanding the concepts behind it uh, is definitely step one. Like I said, we, we understand specific events. We understand that we were hacked in 2016 and we had disinf problems with disinformation uh, in our elections. But we don't see this as a kind of overarching campaign that spans for years and possibly even decades in every liberal democracy around the world. So that's step one. Step two is more defensive capabilities. So are we able to raise detection? Are we able to work with, like I talked about before, corporations, Twitter, Facebook, uh, media outlets to crack down on fake news? Um, and those campaigns are going to take a while. It's going to be largely technology dependent. Um, and so that's less the scope of my paper. But the third solution, which I do talk about and I propose, is offensive capabilities. Can we learn from the way that Russia writes their disinformation campaigns, the way that they strategize, and use it to target vulnerabilities that they might have in their countries um, in order to raise social and political costs on them for engaging with us in, on, in that kind of sphere? And how do we fit that 
within our own ethical frameworks. Because clearly, authoritarian regimes um, have a different set of ethics, something we've called a lot of times uh, asymmetry in ethics. So being that liberal democracy still, how do, how do we get on the offensive but align that with our values? I think part of it is we do have these strong beliefs in, in democracy. And just because it's a disinformation campaign doesn't necessarily mean that we can't export our values and the things that we still believe. Um, so if a disinformation campaign, let's say in Russia, looks at promoting rights for Chechens in Chechnya, that's still promoting human rights, that's still promoting democracy. And even though part of it is nation building and, and jumping up nationalist rhetoric, at the same time, it's weakening Russia, which helps us to an extent, it raises their social and political costs. And also it promotes democracy and human rights, which is something that the United States does actually value. So through disinformation campaign, we can still promote our values, even if we're spreading less than true reality. So you, you alluded to it a little bit earlier um, in one of your answers. Um, how did you how did you come about this topic, and what was your research process like? And did anything jump out at you? Anything unique? Uh, that's a great question. So all of us here are part of uh, the PIPS program, and it's it's a pretty rigorous project for trying to figure out uh, our projects. You propose uh, each week. You come up with probably twenty or so different pro- potential projects, um, and then you present what you think is your best three. And for the first two months of me doing this, so that's, what, 160 projects, they were pretty much all shut down. I came away with it as with a sonic weapons project that was initially the, the target of my research and um, found out too much of the information on sonic weapons is, is classified. Hard to, <laughs> hard to get uh, access to it. Eventually, um, I'm simultaneously writing a thesis looking at secessionist movements and nationalist movements and how uh, diasporas abroad relate to them and uh, allow them to become stronger. Um, So basically the strength of secession through diaspora engagement. So the obvious example that came to mind was Kosovo. And I was going through other examples, uh, Catalonia, Nagorno-Karabakh in uh, Azerbaijan, whatever other secessionist movements there are. And every single time I would go through one of these examples, you would find some allusion to Russian interference or external interference in these kinds of nationalist and secessionist movements. It makes you question, well, why is that? Why do we not talk about that? Why do we not understand the way that nationalist movements work in the context of identity? And so that's kind of where this project spawned from, um, is how do we understand the concepts behind um, identity groups, behind the way that people think, and behind the way that that affects our overarching world? So, Lincoln, what's a technology or a trend that keeps you up at night? That's a great question. I find the idea behind post-truth society in itself to be very scary, and I think a lot of technologies contribute to that. If I had to pick one specific technology that keeps me up at night, I'm going to say the combination of weapon systems and artificial intelligence. I think it's genuinely a terrifying concept. You're going to talk to some people who know way more about it than I do. But imagining non-state actors that are using artificial intelligence uh, to control drones from afar and target people that they want to target is a terrifying concept to me. All right, and finally, what is your favorite movie? That's a great question. Um, I happen to be a very big movie buff. So I have a top three. Um, we, we we'll let you cop out on that. Uh, you right, can do three. Thank you. Um, first one I'm going to pick is Usual Suspects. It's a classic. Verbal Kent, great. Don't don't let any spoilers out, because there's somebody in the room who hasn't seen it yet. I will okay. watch it one day. I won't say anything. Good. Um, a movie came out two years ago called The Death of Stalin. It's a kind of a dark comedy satire with Steve Buscemi. It's hilarious and also very historically accurate, so I'd, I would definitely recommend that. That's up there. Um, and then thirdly, 
uh, Inglorious Bastards. You gotta love Tarantino's uh, rewriting of history. Okay, perfect. Good list. Very good list. All right, Lincoln, thanks for coming in. It was great, to, great conversation, good discussion, and uh, we appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, so we're here with Michaela Fleming. Michaela, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Michaela Fleming. I'm a senior at the College of William & Mary, majoring in government and uh, economics. Uh, and my research kind of focuses on China and the strategic export of its model of digital authoritarianism. Well, wow, that's uh, quite a research project and kind of leads into a question we had in terms of you've looked a lot at China in your research and how is China really using this technology to expand its global influence? Where Where is it focusing at? Yeah, so um, in my research, I kind of saw that China is exporting its surveillance state. And so part of that surveillance state is the physical technology that underpins it, you know, the camera systems, um, the censorship software. Um, but also part of that is this idea um, of cyber sovereignty, the idea that states should have the right to control what happens on their internet and to police it um, according to their own laws. And it's exporting this kind of package to what I'm calling client states. These are developing and already authoritarian countries that are very receptive to this particular technology. And this technology then translates into influence over them because these countries are dependent on China. So they're dependent on China for this technology, and they're also dependent on China because they can't afford to buy this technology from, from anywhere else. So that leverage then allows China to kind of coerce and lead these client states in a way that is beneficial to Beijing. That's extremely interesting. And, you know, that kind of leads me to pull that thread and really think, does there come a time or is there a leverage there that China can really call in that that debt um, to say, hey, we've, you know, we've brought you the security state. Now you owe us. Um, or is this something that Beijing is already doing passively that you think? I think this is something that Beijing is really already doing passively. We're starting to see a lot of these client states uh, backing China, um, especially within international institutions regarding Internet governance. So um, when China and Russia and um, other uh, kind of digital authoritarian states introduce measures um, specifically, let's say, like within the UN General Assembly on Internet governance, we're seeing a lot of these client states back China and support these efforts. And where that might go in the future is we could see, you know, a block of China-centric uh, digital authoritarian influenced countries versus a U.S. kind of block of countries that think of the internet in this free and open kind of sense. You know, you've you've followed this trend line in terms of understanding how China is exporting this surveillance state. Following this along, the Chinese have a lot greater strategic patience than the United States. They see a longer view. So if you were looking at this longer view, what do you see as the end state? What are they trying to achieve in the long run? Yeah, I think the long run kind of uh, objective here really 
results in this clash between two models of governance. You know, if we can extrapolate this trend of digital authoritarianism versus a free and open internet um, to a broader trend about governance structures, um, Freedom House has been registering a decline for years now in freedom online um, and an increase in democratic backsliding. So... I think it's not, it doesn't take this trend too far to say that we have this block of digital authoritarian countries that also now want to pitch digital authoritarianism as an alternative to liberal democracy. And so I think that digital authoritarianism represents a challenge to us as liberal democratic states. And uh, I think how we respond to this challenge is really going to determine whether, you know, digital, uh, digital authoritarianism goes the way of communism or fascism and falls out of favor and is ultimately disproven as a model of governance or whether this is going to be a real lasting threat that the United States has to confront. So, so you mentioned how we respond to this. Um, we'll, we'll set the stage for what the future looks like. How do you think we should respond to this? What, what opportunities do we have here? While there are, are many ways to respond to digital authoritarianism, I think setting a standard of what are the acceptable and the unacceptable uses of data, similar to kind of what the Europeans have done um, with uh, their data privacy regulations, we, we really just need to define what is acceptable and unacceptable. And by setting a standard, we hold ourselves accountable, and we can also hold these other countries accountable and say, this is, this is your red line, this is what you can and can't do. I think we also need to harden these targeted countries, these developing countries, um, by training them in cybersecurity. Uh, and so they may be able to incorporate some of this technology because some of this technology is um, quite beneficial. You know, things like telecom infrastructure um, can bring access to the Internet for, you know, millions and millions of people. So by hardening developing countries, they can incorporate this technology and take an informed kind of make an informed decision about the risks and the benefits associated with it. And then I think for hardcore authoritarian states, you know, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, um, that sort of those sort of states, we really need to increase the costs of adopting this model of, of uh, governance uh, through we can do that through sanctions, um, imposing uh, costs multilaterally with our partners. Um, around the globe, and just by keeping up public scrutiny of regimes that use this technology to repress their populations. We're talking a lot about technology here in terms of exporting that. So really, what what is a technology or a trend that keeps you up at night? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think these predictive policing models that I, I've done a bit of research on them um, to where they these algorithms essentially mine through uh, your everything about you that's online, and, and they pr can predict, you know, whether you might commit a crime in the future, or you could be a political dissident in the future. And I think that's really, really scary. If a government had the ability to predict, you know, if someone might speak against them in the future, I just think that's a terrifying power for any government, even our own government, to have. They made a movie about that, which segues uh, perfectly into this, into this last question. What's your favorite movie? Oh, my favorite movie. So one thing we do in PIPS is we start the year off with uh, everyone going around the table 
and saying what their favorite movies were. And I got so flustered my first time. And I said Attack of the Clones, which uh, as many people, as some people uh, assert, it is the worst of the, the Star Wars movies, not just of the prequels of the Star Wars movies. So I have a soft spot in my heart for Attack of the Clones. Well, this was a fantastic conversation. We really appreciate you talking to us, Michaela. And uh, thanks for all your insights. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, so we're here with Megan Hogan now. Megan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, so my name is Megan, but my friends call me Meg. Uh, I'm a junior here at the College of William & Mary. I'm studying international relations and economics here. Um, and I'm also a fellow for the Project on International Peace and Security. Excellent. <laughs> and so your your um, research with PIPS is focused on deep fakes. Um, so, so weaponized information, and specifically, uh, as you're going to tell us, deepfake technology, um, is being used in disinformation campaigns and is only getting more sophisticated. So what does the future look like for the U.S. if strategic competitors, great powers, and even non-state actors are able to wield these weapons? So when people talk about deepfakes, and if you've ever read an article about them, there's a lot of doomsday predictions with deepfakes um, about how deepfakes are going to lead to the end of truth, right? And um, we won't ever be able to believe anything we see ever again. Um, personally, I think that's a little ridiculous, right? Because we've been able to convincingly manipulate video footage and photographs for decades. Deepfakes are similar to the technology we already have. They just happen to be less detectable. And because of Photoshop and CGI, people generally understand that you can't always believe everything you read and see on the internet. But that being said, weaponized deepfake proliferation will very likely mean more intense and more convincing disinformation campaigns against us in the future. And for good reason. Deepfakes are really great weapons to have in your arsenal. The harm that they can inflict is real, and it's more pervasive than traditional propaganda campaigns because for over a century, um, audio and video have functioned as a bedrock of truth for Americans. Films of liberated Nazi concentration camps, right? The American moon landing, 9-11. All these events have informed and shaped our perception of reality, and research shows that deepfakes do the same thing. So while the average American understands that a video of a shark swimming in like a flooded subway is probably fake, they're not necessarily going to believe that a video of Mike Pence admitting to tax fraud is. And given what happened to us in 2016, I think that big tech companies are finally beginning to recognize the role they play in protecting our democracy and in protecting average Americans from sophisticated psychological attacks. Big tech took a hands-off role in moderating their platforms for years. But when these platforms became exploited, their attitudes changed, right? So Facebook, if I'm not sure if you either of you are familiar with this, but Facebook, um, they just recently said that they're going to ban deepfakes. Um, and that's pretty extraordinary considering Facebook's track record. A future full of deepfakes will probably mean a future full of moderated social media networks. Big tech is going to be our first line of defense. But whether or not they'll be able to keep up with our attackers and weaponize deepfakes, that's the question. I just had want to pull that thread a little bit and I think that's interesting I did see the news that that Facebook is going to ban deep fakes um, do you think that has any implications in terms of people's freedom of speech what's what's the line between what's entertainment and what's disinformation and, and weaponized information yeah that's it's gonna be a pretty tricky line that Facebook's gonna have to walk on it's gonna be interesting to see but 
with deepfakes more generally, I, I think it has to do with intent. Um, that's the only, I mean, I don't really know much with First Amendment in terms of like where de- a Facebook has to walk the line. Um, but I think they're going to have to really step back and see, hmm, you know, is this user just trying to make something that's funny and informative or are they, you know, actively trying to undermine American democracy? So you mentioned what, what Facebook's doing about it as, as an example of what, what an industry response could be. Does the government have any role in combating this? And specifically, um, our point of view, um, does the Army or the DOD have have any role here too. Personally, I don't think it's smart uh, for the United States to wait for big tech to solve our disinformation problems. Um, I think that's pretty irresponsible. And the extent to which others can influence American public opinion is serious, and it needs to be treated like a serious violation of our civil liberties, because it is, right? In my paper, and what I generally am trying to argue through PIPs, is that the U.S. can combat increasingly sophisticated disinformation by weaponizing deepfakes and also by developing an independent media verification agency. So given the nature of deepfakes, right, the best defense is a really good offense. Um, Deepfakes, I'm not sure if either of you are aware of this, but um, how deepfakes work is that they're kind of like viruses, right? So they're constantly evolving. Um, And as is the case with scientists who attempt to create a vaccine for a virus, deepfake detection teams are constantly playing catch up with mutations of deepfakes, right? So more sophisticated deepfakes that have patched up their telltale signs of forgery. Um, And because the algorithms that generate deepfakes continuously learn how to more effectively replicate the appearance of reality, deepfakes will never easily be detected by other algorithms. We're always going to be these scientists who are playing catch up. So by making a weapon and truly understanding the thought process and the intricacies behind the making of that weapon, it helps you better understand how to defend against it. So weaponizing will help us develop better detection algorithms, which in turn will help us better debunk deepfakes as they appear on social media. I think that's a good point in terms of weaponizing. And do you think that within a liberal democracy that we are, um, is weaponizing deepfakes against our adversaries, against a China, against a Russia, um, does that does that jive with our our ethics, our standards? That's a good question, and it's one that keeps coming up with my research. I get a lot of blowback when I suggest weaponizing information for good reason. It's a pretty controversial topic. Um, my response with morals and when I look at American history is that we've extensively manipulated the truth in the past. Deepfakes, when people think of them, it's like this new shiny thing, but it's really not. It's just a new tactic and an age-old um, strategy of propaganda. There will probably be, uh, be blowback against a state actor. Um, when I first pitched this project, it was against non-state groups only. I don't want to make that call, so I'm trying to evaluate in my paper just whether we should consider this at all as a weapon. So the, the question we ask everybody is, what technology keeps you up at night? And I'll be honest with you, your research paper was the answer to a lot of your uh, fellow pips um, on this question. Um, but I'll pose it to you anyway. What, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? It's probably cop-out, but deepfakes, <laughs> um, they're kind of terrifying. I mean, they're, it's impressive how um, seamless they are and how quickly that they're advancing. Um, Just in wake of 2016, uh, I'm just a little worried that we're unprepared to face something like a video. Because I know, even as someone who's researching deepfakes, when I see them, I don't necessarily know that they're deepfakes. So I think they're very powerful weapons that can be used against us. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, so let, let's let's round out this this uh, Pips podcast with the most important question: uh, What is your favorite movie? <laughs> 
Oh man, that's rough. Probably Silence of the Lambs. I think it's just a really, really good one. But I also really like La La Land, two ends of the spectrum. <laughs> we are we are very afraid to be alone in a room right now with Megan. <laughs> Um, okay, no, that, that's a that's a, a great movie. Um, um, wonderful answer. Um, so we want to thank you for this discussion. We want to thank you for the conversation and the answers. Uh, it was a lot of helpful insight to us. Um, and and thanks for stopping by. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests, Lincoln Zaleski, Megan Hogan, and Michaela Fleming of the College of William and Mary's Project on International Peace and Security. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.